Welcome to Around the Table. What is the appropriate way to apply the way of peace in abusive relationships? This is an unpleasant but necessary topic to address, and we'll do that over two episodes, focusing specifically on marriage. To start, we consider how the teaching about peace can be misapplied, how the abused person should respond, and how others might approach stepping in to help. We're here today to expand on the way of peace that's been presented, some specific aspects have been presented, and today we'd like to talk about how it relates to marriage and abuse in marriage. I'm Ron Messner, the elder at the Washington Apostolic Christian Church. I've been involved with the Apostolic Christian Counseling and Family Services since it started 20 years ago, and I'm thankful today to have Sister Amber Miller, Brother Caleb Byer, and I'm going to have them introduce themselves and explain a bit of what their interest and or concern is with the topic. So, Amber, you want to go ahead? Sure. Uh, my name is Amber Miller, and I currently serve as the Missionary Care Director for Harvest Call. Prior to that, I worked at ACCFS as a clinical social worker. And, and during those years, often I would work with women navigating relationship dynamics and just working through healing for situations of abuse. So I think it is really easy to have misunderstandings around headship and submission and, and what that looks like as Christians and, and when that starts to border into abuse. And so that is one of the reasons this topic is really important. And my name is Caleb Beyer. I'm a minister at the uh, Washington Apostolic Christian Church and work here at ACCFS as a licensed marriage and family therapist. Um, at ACCFS, my area of focus is relationships. And so um, in this role, I work with uh, distressed marriages as well as individuals that have experienced abuse in the relationship, whether it be marriage or uh, outside of marriage. And so my desire and passion is for continuing to support healthy relationships. And so certainly uh, when we think of abuse, it is corrosive and cancerous to healthy relationships. And so uh, whenever we have the opportunity to talk about continuing to cultivate healthy relationships within the body of Christ. That's something I'm interested in. Thanks to both of you for sharing. I'm thankful for your willingness to, to take the time and sit down and go through the topic. So in an earlier podcast, Brother Fred Witzig, who assisted us in developing this, um, gave a definition. I just want to read the definition because I think it's relevant both in the very broad sense of way of peace, but but also specifically relevant to what we're going to talk about. So th- this is his um Definition, the way of peace is a path to walk that is based on the character of God is revealed from Genesis 1 through Revelation 22. It is a way into and through conflict. It seeks not merely to end a conflict, but to bring about forgiveness, reconciliation, and healing for everyone involved with no exception. It is a path. It's a way to walk, a way of thinking, a way our heart and our minds and the Spirit of God tells us to react when we're faced with people who might try to hurt us physically or emotionally. So I'd like to, to start asking again, Amber and Caleb, just to, um, to give their sense of what the way of peace means. I think way of peace, very simply, to me, means following in the meekness and patience of Christ. Yeah, and as I think about the way of peace, in Scripture it speaks of Jesus being our peace and the essence of peace. So he's the creator and the um, example of what peace is. And so, as his followers, 
we're called to create peace or be peacemakers as well, as it says in Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers. And so as we think about the way of peace, that's certainly where my thoughts go. And so the first question we want to talk about, how does the call to peace, including our willingness to suffer, how does that intersect with the need to keep our safety or other safety, integrity, in the spiritual welfare of the person who's mistreating us or mistreating others? So we want to speak into, um, in a broad sense, why this applies or how this applies in marriage. So again, I'm going to ask both Caleb and Amber just to share their perspective on how does this intersect. As we think about suffering, this is something believers are uh, familiar with, and it's really the, the path and, and part of the path um, as a believer. But suffering in itself is never the end. Um, even as we see in the life of Christ, he didn't suffer simply for suffering's sake. Neither does he call us as his followers uh, to simply suffer just for suffering. Rather, there was a purpose, and Christ was always moving towards, I think, flourishing, restoration, uh, healing, um, connection. And so the suffering itself was on the path to fulfilling his Father's will and ultimately bringing us into relationship. And so I think as we think about this idea of suffering, um, it was to destroy sin, not to maintain sin. And so um, the way of peace is really about suffering in a way that breaks the power of sin and brings people into relationship. Yeah, I appreciate that, Caleb. And um, one thing that that just comes to my mind is how often Scripture contrasts walking in the light and, and darkness. And I think, again, so often in abuse situations, domestic violence situations, there is so much darkness and secrecy mm-hmm. around that. And so I see really the opportunity just to to bring light into those situations and that is really where power and healing can come from. It's not uncommon for us to say or to hear others say that the role of a believer is to suffer and sometimes to apply that when somebody's in a situation where they're being hurt. And as you've heard from both Caleb and Amber, I don't believe that's what it means that somebody should put up with or be okay with someone being harmed. First, just again, a little bit more comment about how could the way of peace be misapplied mm-hmm. in, in cases of spousal abuse? What are the ways that either an individual might or, or that sometimes we have a church, as a church have misapplied peace-seeking or being a peacemaker with putting up with or tolerating behavior and treatment that shouldn't be? Yeah, I, I think often of the, how easy it is to um, kind of misapply or misunderstand Scripture. Um, we, we take verses out of context and I think pertaining to this topic, it's it's really easy to go to Ephesians and think about some of the verses there about relationship of husbands and wives. And if you if you start to pick and choose just verses from that and not take it in context, um, you really you could go into some dangerous places. Mm. And so I think that is what can happen, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. I want to just add yeah. a thought with that, Amber. We know in Ephesians that wives are called to submit to the leadership of their husband. Um, but if we don't read that with understanding and think through how we apply it, it's easy to go to just submit to whatever kind of behavior, abuse, mistreatment, when in fact it's calling for wives to submit themselves to the leadership of their husband. And when we talk about submission, submission to leadership is very different 
than submission to dominance or abuse. And if we separate those, it, it makes it clear as we go forward. If we just use submission as a word by itself, then we end up applying it across all behavior. That piece has to um, be articulated because that is something all, all three of us have dealt with, um, where it's justified based on that submission piece. Yeah, I think another area that it can be misapplied is we're called to be peacemakers, but not peace fakers. And I think in the Old Testament, we're reminded in, in Jeremiah, really Jeremiah got on the, uh, the, priest, the priests and the prophets for saying, peace, peace, when there was no peace. And so they put on a, it was more about putting on a front that there is peace when behind, it's anything but peace in the sense of flourishing relationship and wholeness. Because this question often comes up about physical violence. Everybody knows that's when somebody is slapped or, or pushed or has a bruise. And um, how to understand not just the difference, but the, the impact of emotional violence, not as opposed to physical, but, but comparatively. And we, we find this often misunderstood. So I'll just ask each of you just to address that. How would you, what, what's your own um, perception? What's your own evaluation of the outcome of emotional violence and maybe comparatively with physical violence. And under emotional, I would put all the, you know, I would include even in some ways sexual violence, certainly spiritual violence. So feel free to um, include those as you share some thoughts. Yeah, you know, the the way that I really view this is that the wounding is, is very similar in nature. Um, you consider that the physical wounds actually are like marks, but emotional wounds are, are marks as well. They may just be under the surface instead of seen on someone's arm. And, and again, um, both take time to heal. And if ignored, they get worse. Um, emotional wounds and physical wounds all get worse if they're not treated. And so that is, that is one of the things that they all leave scars. Again, it's just whether or not it's under the surface or to be seen for the world. Mm -hmm. Yep. And in some ways, I think, you know, we separate these categories out to make sense and understand them. But I'm not sure if it's possible to experience physical abuse without also experiencing emotional sure. abuse. Um, so, um, but related to emotional abuse, I, I agree with Amber. I think both are wounding. Um, I do wonder, because we don't understand, or even the, the phrase, how's the phrase go, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me, right? We've internalized messages that minimize emotion or the impact of emotion. So I think sometimes emotional abuse can be more isolating and be um, more shrouded, shrouded or around shame uh, for the individual that experiences it. And so while both are painful, at times the, the, the emotional abuse can be more isolating to an individual, I think. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Um, we hope that those who are listening, that that will make some sense. It's certainly something that as elders that we have needed and continue to need just to come to an understanding of that the abuse which can't be seen may be equal to or greater than the abuse that can be seen. Mm -hmm. And it challenges us more because if somebody comes to us with a black eye or a bruised arm, we know that's bad. If somebody comes describing what they're going through because of emotional abuse, it, it is not as clear. It requires listening more carefully mm -hmm. and it requires judgment. And so, of course, it's just more difficult. We can't let that difficulty 
keep us from stepping into an understanding that it can be very, very real. So we're going to move into talking about um, roles, if you will, of specific people or entities that might be involved in a situation. I'd like to start with, if you will, the role of the person who appears to be abused. So what would we say to that person? How should they step into this? Not alone. I mean, in all these cases, you have to work on it as an entity. If there's anything we've learned, we need to engage family and friends and the church and those. But um, just to break it into pieces, um, if each of you would just share some of your thoughts about what would be a right way for the person who's being abused to respond yeah, I, I think ideally in that situation, the person is able to to recognize that they need to be the one to set the boundaries and to seek help. Um, unfortunately, a lot of times there is confusion and they may not recognize that need. And so it can be really hard to kind of talk that through with them that, hey, this is inappropriate and you need to you need to actually step in here especially when there's kids involved or, or it really extends beyond them. I think it's very easy for a person being abused to believe that they're the only one it's impacting, and that just often isn't the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's really important, as you alluded to, Amber, to, for the, this individual to surround themselves with godly and wise and compassionate individuals that they can, that they can be open with and they can they can share uh, some of those struggles, um, and also I think being patient with themselves. The reality is these situations are complex, and and they likely did not develop overnight. And so there are patterns that it takes time to unravel, and it doesn't happen um, overnight. So I think being patient is helpful. The greatest harm or the most damage to individuals who are abused are believing the lies themselves, internalizing these lies. And I think that's where, like you said, Amber, others that are that are speaking into them um, over time can communicate that truth in a way that that brings light, that brings understanding and a path towards healing. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. One of the frustrations that all of us have when we step into these situations is by the time we're aware that somebody's in a, a relationship that's abusive, they have already absorbed a lot of changes and patterns that have become a part of who they are. Mm-hmm. So as we share what we would see their role, we know that we have to be gentle and patient in bringing them into that role. They need education, but education alone is not going to help them to change the lies that they've heard and believed and incorporated and just the helplessness that's developed um, as they live in that. So let's move into um, ways that family can effectively intervene. You know, generally families are there, they want to do something, want to try to solve, um, but either um, don't have the, the skills or the knowledge or don't know what to do, and so they continue to tolerate that. So maybe just share some thoughts about what those people, and we can talk about family and friends together, Those are the people who are close to them, who are aware of it, how might they step in in a way that could be effective? Yeah, I think this is just, man, it's a really hard one for people that are close to this couple. Um, sometimes they've never never seen the side of an individual, and so it can be really hard to believe. And so they're reconciling their own emotions as they're kind of walking into the situation. And so I guess a piece of advice I would say is is be careful to rush to judgment. And if possible, kind of hear both sides of it. I think, again, it can be really easy to to take sides and just to um, kind of start creating barriers, if you will, 
um, instead of being able to continue to um, just make sure you see the whole picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Remembering that this is complex. It seems it, it in these situations, oftentimes they seem simpler than what they really are. And I think just remembering that there are many factors that are playing into this and remembering the complexity of it um, and not rushing to judgment, as you said, Amber, I think is helpful. And I think just being a safe place where the individual can share their feelings and validate and not seek to to correct or um, even being cautious on, you know, throwing script. I say throwing scripture. Certainly we want to point them to scripture, but there's there's times where they are just sharing pain and they just need someone to hear them, to know that they're not alone in that pain, Yeah, um, I think is important. And to not, it, what's difficult, and you referenced this, Amber, is to not react out of their distress. Meaning, as we think about the way of peace, Jesus always engaged when there was oppression, but he didn't do it with oppression. He didn't react. And I think sometimes we can, when there's injustice, we come in and it's easy to react. And while it's wrong, um, we can feed into negative emotions that aren't helpful uh, for the individual that's being abused. I think one of the um, one of the struggles that we have as counselors when we uh, are, are informed and, and seek to intervene in some way is balancing out that there's a crisis this has to be solved and the fact that probably initially mm-hmm. whoever is the person being abused just needs you to listen. Before this is true, both of you would support. I know in other counseling situations, the greatest need is to know that one person understands what I'm in, and once that's established and heard, it gives a trust level and a support level that will allow that person to step in with you more. But if you if you don't give them the time, even to make bad excuses to say things that you know don't make sense, you need to hear them. You need to just reflect on what you're hearing so that you can engage with them and then move on to next steps. And I think with that, Ron, just that um, remembering how hard it is for the individual to start speaking into that when it's such a private struggle and publicly their husband, in this case, again, we're assuming um, the the husband is the abuser. That's not always the case, but is a, a good person publicly. And so to start stepping into sharing some of these realities, and so I think for family and friend, just acknowledge that's really hard to to share that. It's really hard, and just validating how hard it is to 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 speak I, into that. I appreciate. Yeah. So one of the things I would say to that, just to support it, is generally speaking, when somebody is in that kind of a relationship, they're they're not sharing because it's embarrassing. They're not sharing because they're intimidated, but they're also not sharing because they don't know if you will believe them. It's important to let them speak and understand just how hard it was to say this. It's, it feels shameful to know your marriage is in trouble, shameful to know you don't have enough um, personal backbone to stand up to it, mm-hmm. um, and, and even the embarrassment of acknowledging that I've let somebody do this to me mm-hmm. and helping them not to be shamed in that, but to know that there's, there's hope on the other side as we engage together. Mm-hmm. So I want to step into a little bit the role of church leadership. This is, it's been a challenge um, through all churches, all times, and it certainly is today for the Apostolic Christian Church, and particularly for elders and deacons and ministers to understand what our role is and what is scripturally right for us to do. 
we are believers in marriage. We are believers in biblically-based marriage relationships. Um, we feel strongly, we feel Scripture speaks strongly about divorce and separation, that we're not just free to step into those. And so I think we can say we've had overall a history of encouraging people to try to make it work, to try to stay in those relationships, not when we know there's abuse, but when we're just not sure of what that is. So at a recent elder meeting, we discussed that church leadership needs to be there to support the abused person. That is to listen, to hear what they're going through. But we also talked about that sometimes we have to do more than just say we would accept or tolerate a separation. Sometimes if we assess the situation and realize the harm that's being done, they need us to do more than accept. They need us to step in and say, I think it would be wise if you would separate or get intervention or get counseling. Um, That's uncomfortable for us as elders to do because it has that, or at least we fear it has a tone of condoning moving on to a different relationship Mm -hmm. or disregarding this relationship which was established with till death do us part. So I, I really appreciate the comments both of you have made about abuse and violence and what the way of peace actually means, means pursuing that peace. It doesn't mean tolerating a lack of that. Um, so I shared, I think, as elders, we're trying to understand that better, and I, I think we will continue to step into it. So that was a helpful discussion. At the same meeting, um, we talked about the likelihood that the person being abused is likely to show some, what I would just call negative traits. Under abuse, under any oppression, generally speaking, our worst traits come out. Mm-hmm. So we would at least encourage whoever's involved, family, church, leadership, elders, some of the traits that you are likely to see are a result of being abused, as opposed to that person's character or um, personality or um, those traits. So I'd, I'd appreciate both of you to comment a little bit about church leadership, about how to support that, things we would like to um, to leave specifically with leadership. So one of the things that I think about, Ron, is just remembering that this relationship is more than a disappointing relationship, but rather it's a destructive relationship. And so um, it's not just uh, the sightings falling off of the house, but termites are eating the very structure of the house. And so I think even well-meaning, um, and in fact, as sometimes as a helper or minister, I'm a conflict avoider. So I would like to believe that marriage is in better shape than it is. Sure. If I go down the path of believing in the shape that it really is destructive, that means more conflict that I need to sit with myself. And so I think just remembering that, yes, this is a destructive one, which means if I approach it like I would approach a disappointing relationship and say, you know what, you need to commit to spending more time together, actually, that can lead to more disruption in an abusive relationship. So I think it's a it's a mind shift, but being mindful of that as we're working in these situations, I think is an, an important piece. Yeah, and I, and I would just say, um, kind of going along with that, Caleb, I think you bring up a good point that, that we all kind of bring our own bias into a situation. And so mm. sometimes, like, if you know that you are conflict avoidant, that may make you minimize the situation. Or if your tendency is to jump in and try to fix, like you're going to try to go there. Likewise, I think it is easy to have a bias toward either the husband or the wife. And and as men, I think church leadership, maybe their bias would be more toward siding with the husband, just mm-hmm. naturally. 
um, or understanding maybe where they're coming from. And and so again, just recognizing what is your bias as you hear this couple um, and hear the situation that's laid out before you. Mm-hmm. And I know that in some situations, um, I've heard of elders bringing in their wives or having the, the wife meet with the one who's abused to, to that point, Amber, that they found to be helpful in understanding or you know, even for the individual that's abused, maybe open up. And I know that's not that's not a reality in all cases, but sometimes that can be a helpful uh, way to approach um, in supporting the abused. Because again, if you think about that, what you're saying, Caleb, uh, imagine a wife who has been abused for some time, and then she's going into another situation with another male. And authority figure. Another authority yeah. figure, exactly. It yeah, can be really difficult to to be fully open yeah. um, and to feel understood and, and like there is safety in that environment. As elders, we don't typically see see ourselves the way others see us. We, we think we're approachable. We think we're reasonable. We believe that we're spiritual. And I would say probably all those are true. But understanding to an abused person that is not necessarily who you are. And particularly not if the, the husband, again, we're going to go to that situation, has said, he'll never believe you, or you know I'm right, or he's going to defend me and has created a situation where they already are pretty sure that we're going to be biased. A couple of other areas of bias. Um, one, when Amber, when you mentioned about um, elders as men perhaps being more biased toward the husband, mm-hmm. and it is because we understand that I think there's an additional piece. When we look at a relationship that might be falling apart, emotionally, we see a wife, perhaps children, who have some option of where to go. They could more acceptably maybe move in with parents or something like that. And we tend to see this poor guy who's going to be left all alone, not not have affection or companionship. And we, we over-identify with his pain because we don't have anything to suggest to him like we do. So we need to be aware of that. And the other bias that because we are the apostolic Christian church, because we're family-based, because we know each other well, we have to be really in tune with who comes from which family and what preconceived notions do we have about what families are reasonable or not so much or who's reactive. And we've all done this and we can bring those biases in also and imply or overlay the situation with things that are not necessarily relevant. Thanks for listening. And if you have comments on Around the Table or ideas for future episodes, let us know. In AC Central, go to the Settings menu, select User Feedback, and when the web page opens, click the Feedback on Around the Table link. Around the Table is a production of Onward Media, a communications ministry of the Apostolic Christian Church of America.